Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything, so this podcast is a reflection of that. Here, we speak on non-mainstream perspectives, like personal growth in motherhood and relationships, awareness of the ego versus the soul, the voice of fear versus intuition, We discuss what it looks like to step into your power and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I'm obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and their babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is about women taking radical responsibility for their life, shedding victimhood for good. I am so proud to have Andrea on the podcast today because she is someone that has been through the experience of IVF and has gained so much wisdom, so much knowledge, and obviously has really been carved into a new human from that experience. But Andrea and I can definitely relate to each other because I have my own fertility journey where I haven't gotten pregnant in many years. So Andrea and I can really relate to each other. And this is why I want to share a few of my perspectives before we launch into the podcast with her sharing her story. So I have another podcast episode about miracles and our definition of a miracle. I would really urge people to really look at what their definition of a miracle is and question it because I think a lot of us humans think it's when we get what we want. And let's really question whether God would agree if that's what a miracle is. Marianne Williamson in her book, A Return to Love, says that a miracle is a shift from hate to love. And I agree. So with that perspective, that definition of a miracle, you know, someone acting in hate and then their heart is transformed and they act in love. If that's a miracle, what else could be a miracle? What about acting in distrust to then acting in trust? What if a miracle is acting with tight control issues and then surrendering that control? So Andrea and I both agree that fertility issues, the, the, the miracle of fertility issues is seeing that trust in the human that is experiencing the issues if they want. We have free will. So you can just hold on tight to your control issues and you know never be a changed person. You have that free will. But Andrea and I, we have really used fertility issues to become a new person. You know, we really have used our fertility issues as our underworld of gaining a new identity, of becoming a better person and having self-growth and especially spiritual growth through this. So what if the miracle of fertility issues is that you act in trust for the first time in your life? What if you learn to trust your body 
and look at your body as the miracle that it is, that it's doing so much every single day right now in this moment to keep you alive. What if the miracle of fertility issues can bring you to a level of connection and trust with your own body or with God or with your husband? You know, there's no limits to what what this miracle can, you know, bring to you in your life. And another thing that I really want to touch on is the word infertility. Um, you know, I personally don't subscribe to it because, you know, my body has fertile signs every single month. And I'm sure Andrea's does too. So it's a diagnosis that you can identify with or not. And I don't think we do. But I like to question, is it infertility or is your baby's soul not ready yet? Is it infertility or is your own soul trying to help you with control issues? Is it trying to get you to surrender to trust instead of your mind will? Is it infertility or is your body just rebalancing after being on birth control for a decade? Is it infertility or is your womb trying to get your attention and begging for a connection and a communion with you? The main reason why I want this podcast to be out in the world is because it feels unbalanced in perspective of IVF, that it's only light. You can get what you want and the meds are no big deal and it's just all light. It's not true because everything has shadow and light and the meds that you take for IVF can be a big deal. And, you know, Andrea's going to explain her experience on these meds, you know, things like Lupron, I'm pretty sure. And so I'm so excited that we can talk about the shadow and the light. And I have not personally experienced IVF because I don't think I will ever choose that route for myself because my personal perspective is that it can be more heartbreak because you are signing up for a whole other mystery. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. you might do IVF and it might never be successful, which is a whole other heartbreak. You might do IVF and you might have a miscarriage and you've spent all of that time and that money and and it's just a whole other mystery. It's a box of mystery and you don't know what you're going to get. And a lot of people just go into IVF thinking, one time I'm going to get what I want. And it's not true because we all have our unique journeys, right? It might take you one, two, three times or it might you might never get what you want through IVF. So Andrea, I am so excited for this. Thank you so much for having the courage to say your story. Oh my gosh. So let's just hear a little bit about you and then you can just start off to wherever you want to start. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, This is a bit of a dream realized to even be here on your podcast talking about this. Um, And really being invited into a space, like you said, that holds the light and the dark. Um, So my name is Andrea. I live in Ann Arbor, just outside of Detroit um, in Michigan. I um, 
have been married to my husband, Greg, um, for about seven years, and our daughter, Charlotte, will be celebrating her second birthday next month. Um, so I guess my story starts, oh, um, back as a child, um, I think my first core memory in terms of feeling like I was called to motherhood, and this is the language that was used because I was raised in a very, um, conservative Catholic, um, home. And so I was called to motherhood and I felt this in, um, the way that essentially the way I was conditioned, the way I was brought up, um, how I was praised for being such a great helper to my mom with her other, you know, her three younger kids. Um, she had four total. I was the oldest. Um, and so I felt like I was parentified as a young kid and, um, and I remember even I went to Catholic school and I remember there was a, a unit on saints and all of the saints were nuns, um, and, or the female ones were at least. And I remember saying to my mom, um, what if I don't want to be a nun? Um, and, and she sort of laughed and was like, well, what makes you think you need to be a nun? And I said, well, all of the saints are nuns. And if I'm going to be a saint, I need to be a nun. Um, and, and she was like, well, I'm not a nun, but you know, I could be a saint. And, um, and what am I? And I was like, well, you're a mom. And she was like, right. So you could be a mom and you could be a saint. (laughs) And as a young child, I, I internalized that as like, well, that is what I'm going to do. That is what I'm good at. That's what I'm being affirmed in as a young child. And, um, and I do have intangible qualities that of a helper, a caregiver. I'm a two on the Enneagram. Um, so that's very much my nature to put everyone else's needs above my own. Um, which now as an adult, I'm exploring the shadow side of that. (laughs) But, uh, so I was really set up to believe that a, I was called to be a mother and B, um, being surrounded in this community of, women and children and lots of children that it would come easily. It was not even a question that it wouldn't come easily. Children were a blessing from God. Of course, I would have children, many of them, as many as I wanted. Um, And I remember even having conversations with friends. How many kids do you think you want? And it would be like, well, maybe three or four, but I don't know. (laughs) Um, And in moving forward into my life, um, you know, the next step in order to being a mother is finding your person or finding your partner. And, um, I had, um, some relationships that I was convinced were quote unquote, the one and, um, really, really experienced some deep, devastating heartbreak when they didn't work out. Um, now looking back, I can see those relationships in a much different light and have immense gratitude and love for those men and for myself at that time. Um, but I felt like my husband, Greg, um, wasn't coming fast enough or 
at least not on my timeline. Um, and so we met um, in, let's see, July of 2014. And, um, and it was pretty immediate. We, we hit it off. Um, and it was it's like when two souls meet and they are in alignment with, with what they want, with um, compatibility with one another. Um, so for those that speak Enneagram, my husband is an eight and eight and twos, though different, are very um, complementary and drawn to one another because of the um, complementary strengths. So um, yeah, we just, we really jived, really hit it off and we were engaged in under a year. Um, and then had an engagement of about a year and a half and then <clears throat> got married and then about six months into our marriage. So it wasn't a question of if we wanted kids. It really was just when we wanted to start having them. How old and were you? At that time, I was 30. So I turned 30 the week, two weeks after we got married. Um and so that was also part of it, right? Like our culture feeds this, this lie or this um, timeline of what, uh, what it looks like or when you should be getting married. And, you know, in my mind, it was I wanted to be getting married at 25 and was going to be done having my three children by 30. <laughs> um, and that was very, very much not my experience. Um, as you know, I met my husband just before my 28th birthday. Um, so as we're, you know, starting this journey, that's also in my mind of like, well, I'm 30 and he's 32, you know, let's, let's kind of get this train going. And so, um, he wanted to wait a year. I wanted to start immediately. And so we compromised and we waited six months and, um, and naively, I just thought, well, then if we wanted to have children, we start, we would start having them. Like that would just be what yeah. happens. And it would take one month. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and the first time, you know, I remember getting uh, my cycle after that first month and being devastated. <laughs> And I just like I have so much compassion for that young woman who just was going to be a mother, you know, and this is how it was going to happen. And so that first month it didn't happen. But guess what? The second month it did. Um, and it was it was just like everything that we had wanted. And and yet I remember him being um, nervous Um but I didn't share that same, I didn't share that same concern. Um, we ended up um, experiencing a miscarriage with that first pregnancy. And that um, was something, again, that we never, ever, ever thought would be a possibility, just like how I never thought not getting pregnant would be a possibility. So when we went for our first 12 week um, ultrasound and the baby was measuring eight weeks and there was no heartbeat that was shock total and utter shock um 
And I remember it was just in, I was so numb. I remember because I work in the health system. So I remember at the ultrasound saying to the doctor, I was like, okay, well then I guess I'll just go back to work. And I remember her putting her hand on my leg and looking at me just so kindly and saying, you're going to go home today. (laughs) And it was the start of showing myself compassion and allowing my body to surrender to the process that had begun. Um, I learned so much in that time with that miscarriage. Um, I ended up taking a medical leave um, for about six weeks. So when you think of it in terms of like the corporate world, it was like I took a maternity leave for my miscarriage, um, which I'm so grateful that I was allowed allotted that time. Um, I sought mental health services in that time. Um, and at the same time, we, we still, we decided like, okay, you know, medically, if I'm cleared, then we're going to continue trying for our family. It was kind of like this, well, the first one didn't work. So we're just going to have another kind of a thing, almost like this thought of your dog dying and needing to replace it right away. Um, which I can look at and see that was a total defense mechanism of not being able to hold the space for that sadness and that grief. Um, And at the same time, we were given that time because we didn't get pregnant right away. Um, In fact, not even close. So we um, continued and the way that it's structured within the medical system is you are supposed to quote unquote try for a year before you're even eligible to receive a referral to a reproductive or an endocrinologist a reproductive specialist um and so we went through various routes of um, natural doctors um different diagnostic testing. Um, And mind you, I grew up Catholic. And so some of these um, different methods for fertility, um, the church has pretty strong views on. And so I really had to separate myself um, in this own, in my own journey. In this time, when we were experiencing this infertility, we took a step back from going to church um, or at least church as we knew it. So I felt like we were just faced with kids everywhere. It was just families on families. And I didn't feel like there was any space within the church for infertility or for talking about wanting something so desperately and feeling like God had put this on my heart and it wasn't happening. And that's a, that's a deeper, um, that's a deeper thing about quote unquote unanswered prayer 
um, as we know it, right? Looking at um, God as Santa Claus or like a very transactional relationship um, where answered prayer is only when we get exactly what we want or what we signed up for what we what we wanted. And, yeah, and that's that's where all of our control issues with God stem from is this God that's punishing and rewarding it's good and bad. And so God as Santa Claus, oh man, it's, it's, you know, what is a miracle? Like I said that in the beginning, our miracle oftentimes is our definition. It's when I get a child that I want on my timing, that's a miracle. But what about God's definition of a miracle? What about God's view of miracles? Like we're just coming from our limited brain, our limited mind that wants what it wants when it wants it. And then you throw God in there and it's a, it's a whole thing. It's a whole. You've said it. Absolutely. And carrying that forward was a, it really was a crossroads in my spiritual journey. Um, and as I can look back on this, I can see that this was so painful and yet so necessary for my soul's evolution. And I made the decision alongside Greg to open ourselves up to the fertility world, to the reproductive endocrinologists. And looking back, I can see where we gave away our power, where we gave it too readily Um, because God wasn't coming through and what we were doing wasn't working. And so naturally the answer must lie here. And I don't think the medical system is inherently wrong. I think that as anything else, it's a tool and to use it wisely and the way that we approached it was looking for a way to control a very uncontrollable situation and that's not unique to us with our fertility journey um but our and that that goes the same also for eastern medicine which i dove equally as headfirst into with the acupuncture and oh my gosh my husband He has some very strong feelings about this specific fertility acupuncturist who wanted us to come in twice a week at $200 a pop each. And she was quote unquote guaranteeing that we would get pregnant. Right. And he was like, I'm sure she was. I'm sure if we had continued at her rate, we would have gone bankrupt. And at some point would have conceived and she would have taken credit for all of that, which is. Yeah, Eastern modalities are thousands of years old. So they have this, you know, thousands of years old, but we're still using it for control. So it's it's how are you using the modality? Are you using it for control? Which, yeah, that's what you do when you're not getting what you want. Yes. I know. Yes. And to see that for what it is now, I, yeah. I, I do. I have so much, so much compassion. And, so, and also we should say that anytime 
you know, for both of us, anytime we say, oh, we haven't gotten pregnant in years, um, you know, someone's always willing to give unsolicited advice of the supplement you should try to get pregnant, like the tea, royal jelly, like literally there are thousands of things people can say. And they do say because they're just trying to help. But like, believe me, if you're in the fertility journey, you know about all the things and you've tried everything already. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. Cutting out dairy, eating the core of the pineapple. eating certain foods at certain points in your cycle. I mean, there are, if you are looking for a way to control, you will find it. And no matter which, which arena you're, you're looking in, you'll find it. Yep. And then meanwhile, we see the most unhealthy people get pregnant one time. Meth addicts get pregnant. Boom. Um, I've seen someone with cancer a year after a cancer diagnosis get pregnant. Yes. Oh, Leah, this is a beautiful segue. So when I started in on this fertility process with the clinic, they... Hold on. Was this one or two years in? This was... Oh, great question. Mm -hmm. 2019 so it would have been two years in to not getting pregnant after the miscarriage yes yes Mm -hmm. yes so one of the drugs that they gave me um for my for like the preliminary cycles leading up to IVF um, because there are all sorts of different roads you can take before like IVF is the big one right um, one of the drugs that they gave me is called Famara and similar to Viagra where it was given to patients and the erection was like a side effect, but then that became the reason for the drug. Famara was given to breast cancer patients and they were finding that their breast cancer patients were getting pregnant. And, <laughs> and so they made it a fertility drug. Mm-hmm. Is this the drug? Okay, there's also a drug, a cancer drug. Is this where women also produced new eggs? It's yeah, it's like Miracle Girl for their eggs. Mm-hmm. Okay, because mm-hmm. to me that's fascinating research that a cancer drug, what has been proven that women created new eggs. So it really busts the myth that we are born with all the eggs we're born with. That that doesn't even make sense in nature. Nature is right. ever replenishing, ever abundant. So for a woman's body to be born with all the eggs she'll ever have just doesn't even make sense with nature because our bodies are nature. Oh, and our bodies are so intelligent. So intelligent. I've had two friends with outstanding circumstances that have had to have their um, ovaries removed and they ovulate every month because the body in its innate wisdom pulls the egg from the other side and the one side that has the ovary will ovulate every single month to compensate. Oh my gosh. It's incredible. It's magic. It really, really is. And so going deeper into these drugs, which we um, you touched on, 
I um, was, I signed up, we signed up for IVF. We decided we didn't want to play around with some other um, processes, IUI, which is intrauterine insemination, which basically is like a tube that replaces the penis. Like you're putting it past the cervix around the time of ovulation and feeding sperm and hoping for the best kind of a thing. And that has just a very low success rate. Um, and so, yeah, we wanted to, especially because those cycles can be medicated, we just saw a lot of our friends go through heartbreak with IUIs. And so we thought we were making the educated decision to bypass that heartache and go straight to IVF, which is just laughable, truly. Um, so we signed up for IVF, which um, includes so many drugs, so many drugs. And for somebody who really prides herself on eating, I know the word clean gets such a, rap, a bad rap, but for eating whole foods, um, plants, um, animals, things that aren't in packages, um, to be signing up to put the synthetic hormones into my body, I really had to look the other way and just like keep my eye on the prize. And so during the egg retrieval, which was oh, essentially where they like blew me up with all of these hormones and made all of these eggs, you know, like 14 on each side, on each side of my ovaries, like grow to the point of full development. So think about how that feels or how that would feel. It feels awful. It feels like you're waterlogged. It's so unnatural. And the way that I was feeling on these drugs, I I truly don't even recognize the person I was. I have I've talked to friends who will bring up that time and I'm like I I don't even know that person because of how hopped up on estrogen I was it it did something in my brain like completely overtook it where I like I said it's unrecognizable and coming off of the egg retrieval which is a surgery right they're going they're putting you under and they are collecting these eggs which is just a really gentle term for like a surgical procedure of then removing what they have overly inflated and and then you know they take them to their petri dishes and there's the process where they have the sperm meet the egg and do their thing and that sometimes results in insemination and it sometimes doesn't and then there's another form called ICSI um, where they actually insert the sperm into the egg for and take away any guesswork. And then after that takes place, then you have a five-day wait period. Um, so you allow the, ma the maturation of these embryos um, or not. And and so there's significant attrition. I remember them showing us this graph because um, we had to sit through like an IVF education session. And this, again, is where you just want to know the weakness of the medical system. I remember asking the nurse, like, is there anything that I can be 
like doing or eating that can support my body in this? And her response was, no, there really isn't any research or evidence to prove that food would impact your body in this process, which, as we've talked about, if you ascribe to this belief system that you take medicine, you ingest medicine, and it produces a result, why then would you not ascribe to the same belief that ingesting food would produce a result, (laughs) particularly if you're ingesting processed or live foods? Wow. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. And so I was aware in this process that I was going to have to continue to be on guard and continue to take care of my body in the ways I knew how to take care of my body. And also, I was handing over so much to them by putting literally my eggs in their basket. And so after, you know, waiting the allotted time, we, um, I think at that time we had five embryos and then four that made it to like the last day. Um, and comparison in this situation is just, uh, within the fertility community, it can be such a painful game because there are so many women who don't get any. Um, there are some that ones that I know of that had so many, um, whether they had quote unquote polycystic ovaries or, or those kinds of things, or if you're told you have low over ovarian reserve, um, or those kinds of things. And a lot of those diagnoses I've really blocked from my mind because I just have pretty strong feelings in, about not becoming your diagnosis. Um, And so with the number we were given, I felt very fortunate. This is a, you know, a viable number and we can absolutely work with this. And it also, um, I'm sure you've heard that it creates the issue, which is where um, religion can step in and have pretty strong opinions about it creates the issue of what do you do with the extra embryos that you no longer need. Um, and with the four embryos that we had, we could look at good, in good faith and say, well, we would use all of them. We would give them all a fair shot kind of a thing. Um, you know, the options that they're given is you could donate them to another person who wouldn't be able, for whatever reason, to experience IVF with their own embryos. You could donate them to research. You could, oh, I think those were the main two, was donating them to another um, couple or donating them to research. Um, So how much time is it between egg retrieval and then the eggs, they mature, they, you know, join with the sperm and they mature. Then when is it inserted into your uterus How, what timing is that oh yeah that's a loaded question because it depends if you if you elect for a fresh or frozen transfer and a fresh transfer would be then with your next cycle um 
So it could be within six to eight weeks from, you know, egg retrieval to implantation. So those, if you're doing a fresh transfer, those embryos or the one embryo, whatever, they are not frozen. They're like sitting there. Correct. Yeah. They're not cryopreserved. Um, is that right? Oh, gosh, Leah. I <laughs> I have to tell you, a lot of this information I've pushed from my brain. That's um, okay. You, someone you, listening you're to not, this. This is your story. You're not claiming to be any sort of <laughs> no. expert. And no. Whatever. It's and, okay. And, and we never did a fresh transfer. Um, okay. So we elected to go to um, genetic testing. Okay. Um, it was just like... At that point, we were all in, and we had experienced the miscarriage, and again, looking for any possible reason why that would have happened. Um, and so what they do for genetic testing is they biopsy the embryos, which is another thing that they don't really tell you. You have to learn this yourself. You have to read the inserts. You have to, like all of, you have to read the fine print, but in biopsying your embryos, they can compromise your embryos. So, which they it nothing happened to ours. But yeah, but that's a risk, and you spent all that money mm-hmm. and time and taking drugs. Wow! And you've gotten to that point, right, where you have this number, and so then to biopsy to send off for testing, they don't test for everything but they test for the vast majority of things, whatever that means. <laughs> and then it's 10, well, 10 to 14 business days later that they contact you with the results from the genetic testing, and then they have your embryos at different grades. Now, this throws in another piece of what you could call too much information for people, right? So they have these grades, like I have an A, B, or I have a double B, or, and at that point in time, you can find out the the gender of your child. And with the way that we went through it, we elected to not find out the gender. It already felt like we were playing God in, you know, in this, in this way and so it was just like we need something (laughs) something that where we're not where we're leaving it more up to the powers that be sort of a thing um and we also saw firsthand i can think of two other acquaintances who found out the genders and it was another level of devastation now greg and i don't have an attachment to having a boy or a girl or those sorts of things but these families did and they found out they both of those families wanted girls and they found out that in their six embryos one was a girl and so to have that information it's too much for a person. And so they were having, they had another layer of grief through all of this. So we saw that and thought, no, thanks. We're just going to be so happy with whatever baby comes. And 
we set our so yeah my egg retrieval was in june of 2019 and then my first embryo transfer was in august of 2019 um and this like I had shared with you before, this embryo transfer was like, this is our baby. This is happening. We were just gearing up like, this is amazing. We're going to be pregnant. There was not a doubt in our minds that this is happening. And when I remember the day I was supposed to find out the results. So you go in for a series of blood work. Um, I forget what day it is, what cycle day it is, Um, but, or what implant day it is that they draw your blood and your levels are supposed to, your HCG levels. Gosh, yeah, I've like blocked so much of this. (laughs) That's great. You've repressed it. (laughs) It's okay. You don't, you don't have to get technical like that. Um, okay. Yeah. So got my levels checked and we were supposed to find out by noon. They were supposed to call by noon. Noon comes around. Haven't heard anything. One o'clock comes around. Nothing. Two o'clock. I'm calling their clinic, which isn't a direct call. It's a call center that then gets in touch with the clinic that, and all, all, while, all the meanwhile, I am working in the hospital, so I have access to my medical record. So I remember a friend of mine was like, well, let's, let's, let's just look it up. And so we went into my record, and I remember looking at the result being like, I don't even know what that means. And, and she was looking at it too, and she was like, is that what I think it means? And it was like dawning on us that it was a low number and it looked like it meant I wasn't pregnant. And I remember going into shock, like, what are you talking about? It felt like all of those feelings of the miscarriage coming back, which I can look at now and see like the residual grief and that cumulative pain the things I hadn't dealt with in that time coming back up um, and attaching to new grief. And so they ended up sending me a portal message and letting me know I wasn't pregnant. A fucking portal message. And so called Greg, left work, you know, started the whole process again of being absolutely devastated, heartbroken. This is the worst thing that could have ever happened. This is not what we planned. This is not what we signed up for. When can we get in to see our doctor? You know, looking for control, looking for ways to fix or right the wrongs kind of a thing. Because even though IVF rate, successful rates, it's, it is somewhere around like 30%. It, that is quite low, right? But it in in our society it's regarded as the savior and it's regarded as a sure thing very much so oh very much so in a in a way that i felt like when i signed up for ivf that i was like announcing defeat like okay well this will at least be a surefire way 
which truthfully, when I, I look at it now, when I was standing in it, I remember looking at it like how I looked at online dating for meeting my husband. Like, well, I'm just throwing up, throwing in the towel. I'm just going to get online and that's how I'll meet him. <laughs> and I just, oh, I cringe because I did meet him online. And also, how how are people meeting people these days? We're yeah. all on our devices. We're all online. Like, and there's there isn't the same stigma as there was back in the '90s or whatever when you were me- or early 2000s yeah. meeting someone online. But um, <laughs> anyway, just yeah, a lot of grace for that past version of myself. Yeah. So then you endured an even bigger heartbreak by this. Yes. Yes. Yeah, huge heartbreak. And all the meanwhile, people around me are popping up with their pregnancy announcements, which is just as I'm so deep in my victim state, which is just one more dagger into my self-proclaimed coffin. And I was in a very low, woe is me space when I was introduced to your mom. And I don't know how much you've talked about your mom on this podcast, um, but she is an Avesa quantum healer. She's a medical intuitive. She has a nursing background. And I was introduced to her as someone that might be able to help me. <laughs> and at that time, I, I had stopped seeing my counselor Oh no 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 no! I was seeing my counselor. It was it wasn't until I I started seeing your mom that I had to stop seeing my counselor because I was speaking a different language. <laughs> um, and by that I mean, um, Patty opened up my world. I was I was so unaware of how in victim mode I was. And I was feeling so deeply sorry for myself. I was so committed to feeling so deeply sorry for myself. <laughs> and um, and so coming to her, um, I remember in her intake form, I filled out my, um, she has a question in there about like patterns in your life, things that keep coming up for you. Um, and... I remember that question really allowing me to take some deep personal inventory um, and see where I felt like other people were getting what I wanted and that it was happening for them very easily. Um, And so through my work with her, I was able to do a lot of healing with the inner child Um, She was able to tap into some um, energetic blockages um, and invite me into a space of self-love that uh, I had never been in, I had never been shown before. I had never been modeled before Um, growing up in, in such a christian home you prayed about it you waited for god to respond and if it was probably what they would um, call prosperity gospel these days um which is that 
good things happen to good people kind of a thing. You get what you get or you get what you deserve sort of stuff. Mm, yeah. Um, but that really wasn't in line with my life experience at all. I saw very, very good people get dealt incredibly hard hands. And I saw people <laughs> that were not my favorite people have many things come easily to them. Um, and the way that I describe what she did in terms of my spiritual belief is that it was like I was pushed up against the ceiling of a planetarium thinking that that was the universe. And she just like, boop, pushed it open and this like door opened and there was like the whole entire universe. And nothing that she showed me negated what I had learned before. It was almost like it was scaffolding. Like I knew about guardian angels and I knew about like God's will for my life and to put different language to it, like spirit guides or my and my higher self and we're in Catholicism, we're all about um, like the cloud of witnesses or like the people, the angels and those who have gone before us, like inter- interceding or supporting us. And, and so that concept then helped, helped me to be able to receive what she was saying even more about how interconnected our souls are and um, and embracing this concept that I had never really paid much mind to about past lives, um, which brings me to the concept of soul babies, right? If we are souls eternal and we have chosen to anchor into a body, then what does that mean about the souls that are choosing to come to me or enter into our family? And I saw how I was confusing my path, my desire for a child with this soul's path and this soul's timing. And so then when I could really see and embrace that this soul is choosing beyond the shadow of a doubt, the perfect time and place for their coming into this world, then I looked at all that we were doing to try and conjure this pregnancy and this conception as I saw it more for what it was, as one way, one invitation for a soul to anchor. And just because we chose to do IVF doesn't mean that it's actually that is going to be the time for that soul to anchor. And so I was able to approach the process with a different consciousness. And that changed my world. And so the next um, transfer that we had was scheduled for November 11th, 11-11 at 11 a.m. And <laughs> I remember Patty even saying, whoa, <laughs> that's uh, that's a pretty powerful time. Um, and 
receiving those kinds of synchronicities um, and, and being open. So we talked about miracles, right? The miracle of awareness. So recognizing that for what it was, not necessarily that that meant that that baby was going to conceive or anchor on that particular day, but that that synchronicity to me in my journey was a confirmation that I was on the path, that I was on my soul's path, and that what was going to happen from there was in line with my highest good. And with that transfer, it didn't result in a pregnancy. And now, now that I had that, that higher level, I had more disappointment with the clinic. There were other things going on, but I had a different appreciation for it not being the right time. And looking back, I could probably say, because I'm at a different level of consciousness than I was then, I probably still was partly in victim mode, you know, still bouncing back and forth. Um, Yeah, you're probably just more aware of your victimhood. Like, you know, for however long you weren't even aware that you were in victim. And then once you gain that awareness, you can then see when you're in victim and when you're not. And the goal is not to never not be in victim. It's just being in victim and maybe giving yourself compassion through it. It's maybe not acting out in your victim mentality. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. And and feeling even more empowered to question what was happening in this clinic. Um, I could see very clearly that you know, this is a pretty um, highly regarded medical establishment. And I could see pretty clearly that they hide behind that, that name. And I, I dove into my own research of different protocols um, and different processes in terms of um, having the or preparing the womb for implantation. And um, and I questioned a lot of things. And, you know, the response I got was, well, we don't usually do that until, you know, two or three failed transfers. And like, mm, but whose embryos are you playing with? Like, um, this is not a game. These are lives. And we want to give these babies the best shot. And not that this clinic would ever have said that they also didn't want that. And at the same time, this is an industry where they get more money if you don't get what you want. And that can't be ignored. So we moved forward with a change in protocol and this change in protocol, you know, now at this time we're getting to December. So painting the picture, this is December, 2019, right on the cusp of what altered the world as we knew it. And um, they had me, so they looked at what happened with conceiving naturally the first time. And they saw that as, because I was on birth control before this, hormonal birth control, the last, well, we can, yeah. I'll cross that bridge in a minute. Um, 
And what they said that hormonal birth control does is it suppresses ovulation, suppress, suppress, suppress. And then when you come off of it, all of the suppression actually then can trigger ovulation to happen. Um, And so they were wanting to recreate that. Um, But without me going on birth control, they, um, they put or they included Lupron, which is um, a medication that essentially sends a female body into early menopause. So, or the gentle term they told me was, it will put your ovaries into hibernation, quote unquote. They know and- how they know how to deliver. They know how to deliver messages, wording. It's very deliberate. Oh yes, oh yes, very deliberate. And I remember the side effects from that medication were horrendous. I had debilitating migraines. Now, mind you, migraines were already a part of my story. Um, However, when you play around with the hormones, the way that these medications were playing around with my hormones, my migraines were out of control. And so... I was having to consult with neurology. Uh, so, which also is just like then building on this narrative that I am just this poor, helpless victim that needs the help of this system. And Lupron um, gave me the most awful um, hot flashes, awful, awful hot flashes. And mood swings. I mean, all of the things, the vaginal dryness. Yeah, thank you so much for touching on the medication aspect because to me, it is one of the most overlooked topics with IVF because they are big pharma drugs that have adverse effects. And when we take a drug, any type, there is a consequence. And with IVF medication, there's emotional consequences, mental consequences, and physical consequences. And I would urge anyone to look up the drug inserts of the multitude of drugs that you take for fertility treatments. They can have long-lasting long lasting effects as well. But you also bring up a point where, to me, there's a second layer of victimhood with fertility issues Well, actually, not just fertility issues, because I have seen this with egg freezing. So I have seen women that have the privilege of choice to go and freeze their eggs, and they become a victim to their choice, right? This is their own choice, but then they complain throughout the entire egg freezing journey, you know, my body feels like this, and this is so hard, and this is so taxing, and I have to keep injecting you know, these drugs into my stomach and all these things, but it was your choice. So to become a victim to your own sovereign choice is a pretty, you know, big ego situation going on. So not only with fertility issues, you know, are you woe is me, you know, women typically are in victim about being quote unquote infertile. But then once they choose IVF, they become a victim to that choice. Poor me. I have to do all these injections. I have to take these meds. 
but it can feel better if you can look at it as your sovereign choice versus something that's out of your control because you know it is in your control absolutely and i think that it gets really murky the victimhood gets really murky because you almost feel trapped like my i'm choosing this and if i decided to not choose this then what and i can say that for myself um and so we were on i was on lupron for three months for december january february and then in and then i started the buildup so there's always a buildup at the beginning i you know ended my lupron and then there's a buildup to like simulate ovulation and the receptive uterus for the implantation and so i the buildup happened at the beginning of March and our transfer, this is our third transfer, was set to happen on March 16th, 2020. And it was on the 13th when things were starting to shut down. And I called our clinic and was like, what's happening? Is this going to impact our transfer? And they had said to me in no uncertain terms, business business is proceeding as usual. This isn't going to impact us. And then I received a call the night before our transfer, which is a Sunday night on March 15th, saying that until further notice, all elective procedures are being postponed. So another, <laughs> which was, another blind side. Yes. Yes. After three months of this debilitating medication and at that point it was just laughable it was it was medically irresponsible in my opinion I you know as you go through fertility as you go through really anything you can find partners in your pain and I did find somebody and she was a sister of a friend and co-worker of mine who was going through IVF on the west coast like we were just all in line we had both gone through Lupron. We had both gone through the the timing of our medication was just crazy. And her transfer was going to be two days after mine. And mine got called off here in Michigan and hers over in Oregon did not. And <laughs> so no fast, forward, fast forward to now, it's really bizarre. She has a kid, right? From Who's that? like From that who's, you know, however many months older than Charlotte. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's a really funny thing. But um, so, yes, hers moved forward and mine did not. And that's and, another, like, woe is me. Yes. Yes. Oh, gosh, yes. And at, at that point, though, it was like, yeah, it was an incredible woe is me. And then... I saw everybody around me in COVID lose their control too. And I felt so validated. Yes. I was vindicated. Yes. Your ego is like, now you know how I feel. <laughs> yes. it Totally. Totally. It was swimming in it. And so I 
felt like, okay, well, at least I'm not alone. And people are now experiencing what this is, what this feels like to not get what you want when you want it. Yeah. Oh, like your trip is canceled? Poor you. My chance to have a baby was just canceled. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. and then all those bad jokes started being made about how there were going to be so many COVID babies and all of this. And uh, and then here we were, our transfer got halted. And on the other side of the spectrum, when it came to quote unquote elective procedures, they were still performing abortions. And I, so I don't identify with either side of a political party. I am all about calling the bullshit. And I was like, absolutely not. If a woman can choose to abort a baby, a woman should also be able to choose to implant a baby. This Crazy. is absolute crap. So um, here we were. Our doctor had put me on birth control to maintain, quote unquote, uh, the work that we had or the progress we had made. And so there was absolutely no chance of us even conceiving naturally during this time. Um, (laughs) So here we were just in this holding pattern for March, for April, for May. And then, yeah, it was a solid three months of no hope. What the heck? No hope. What the heck? Um, and in this, it's also where I found my peace because I felt like I'm doing everything that I can in this moment. And so there's nothing left to do but enjoy it. And I really took a deep dive into my health, into creating new recipes, into like diving into living foods and um, life-changing foods, as Medical Medium talks about, um, which is uh, another uh, arena that I was really, that I found really helpful in taking my power back, um, because that's exactly what he talks about is the medical system doesn't have A, an interest, or B, the knowledge for and finding the root cause. And we could get into a long conversation about quote unquote research that's bought and paid for. Um, But nobody cares more about you getting well than you do. And so when I look deeply at the fertility community, nobody's looking at what the root cause of this is. There is a quote unquote, which we were given, like a quote unquote mystery and fertility diagnosis, which is really just a load of bullshit. It basically says, we don't care enough to put money into researching women's reproductive health in a way that would be beneficial to you. And, and I don't, I'm not going to wait around for it. I'm not here for that. So I decided that I was going to do both. I was going to continue on with the path that we had already started and that I was going to empower myself and take my power back with healing my body with foods. And so um, our transfer was then scheduled for June and 
I had built myself up. We had, mind you, this is third transfer out of four embryos. No. Shoot. Did I lose count? No. I think it's your third. Because... Third. Yeah, you're right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> third transfer. Three out of four embryos. And um, I get another situation where the clinic information or the clinic did not have their shit together. And I get a portal message before anybody calls me and it gives me my test result. Well, again, I can't decipher my own test result when it comes to blood levels. Like, what does that even mean? And so I'm looking at this and it's like greater than 10 is my level. And I'm like, great. My level before was like below one. So this is higher. That's a good thing. Um, And I get a call then from a nurse expressing their condolences. And so I'm very confused at this point in time. And long story short is it is a chemical pregnancy where everything medically lined up and they don't have an explanation for why the baby did not implant. And so this is where the expanded consciousness and my newfound beliefs about soul babies came into play, which I had talked with Patty about in our sessions, which were like a buoy for me in this time. And I talked with her about how everything medically lined up and yet it wasn't spiritually the time for that soul to anchor. And was the medical community going to be able to explain that? No. No, they were not. But I could explain it with that. And that gave me, it was sad, but it gave me enough peace and empowerment to say, okay, we're done with you. We're done with this clinic, regardless that if it was was or wasn't anyone's fault, the way that we'd been treated there was enough. And yeah. that is another arena for IVF, is that not all clinics are created yeah. equal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on with that because you you had certain feelings with your first clinic compared to your second. And I think it is a good indication of shadow and light with clinics. Yes. And using your absolutely. intuition with clinics. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what's really tricky with fertility is that it's not often covered with insurance. And so because I work in the health system, it was covered, the fertility clinic for our health system was covered with my insurance, but not anywhere else. So if you think about that when it comes to supply and demand, they don't have to better themselves. They're not competing for anybody. Everybody's just going there because that's where they're going to go. And and so I feel grateful that we had the support and resources to be able to transfer our last embryo over to a new clinic. And this new clinic, I remember walking through the doors, this woman had 
the most kind and delightful bedside manner. And in her waiting room was like this enormous encased, must have been 300 pounds, amethyst crystal in the shape of a uterus, like fallopian tubes and everything. (laughs) And it was the most beautiful sight and also gave me insight into, okay, she's a little woo-woo. I can get on board with this. So, um, and she was on it. You want to talk about somebody who was comprehensive and so thorough and really looked at the whole person. She talked about nutrition. She talked about ways that we were supporting ourselves in this process. It was really a partnership. And that's not how I felt with the other clinic. Um, So I already felt more at home in that regard. And she was going to do everything in her clinical hands to help bring this baby into the world. And we we lined things up with her. I mean, things just take a long time in in the health system between appointments, between diagnostic tests. You know, she ordered a few of those. And so we I had that um, chemical pregnancy in June, and it wasn't until December that we were implanting our fourth embryo with her. December? December. Okay, well. 2020. Yeah, when you said it like that, it feels like there's a lot of waiting. Yes. Yes. Waiting for tests, waiting for answers, waiting for a phone call, waiting to start a new drug. Yes, and it's interesting when you think about it that it's controlled waiting. Whereas when you are going through the fertility journey on your own volition, it's unbounded waiting. There is no control in that outside of, you know, the cycle and the two-week wait and all of those kinds of things that you can kind of time a little bit. Um, But this is very, very much like controlled waiting. Controlled waiting with the illusion of an end point. Oh, yes. But that endpoint is an expectation that might not line up with your baby soul. Yes. That's why it's just you're signing up for a bigger mystery. A thousand percent. And getting to look back on all of these things. So we were set for a particular day. I think it was December 14th. And I remember going in and she so they they do an ultrasound to check your the thickness of your lining and they want it to be a certain thickness before implantation and i remember getting um a call from her clinic saying that you know she wanted to push this transfer back a week to allow my lining to continue to uh, um to grow and i remember being so upset and the people because I just sort of felt like it was one more thing. And that's how this fertility journey in the system can feel is like, especially when you're so emotionally fragile from all of the things being jostled around. And it, and I had people in my life to say, no, this is really good. This person is really paying attention and pivoting 
based on what they're finding. They're not just finding something and continuing to move forward full steam ahead with a protocol. Um, so it ended up that our transfer happened. Um, I'm not remembering the exact day, but the day that we found out whether or not I was pregnant was Christmas Eve. And I remember getting that call, which really honestly felt in the moment, it felt like too much. It was like, either way, this is just like a very emotionally charged day. <laughs> and I, we got the call that I was pregnant. And that day, my mom told me that she found out on Christmas in 1985 that she was pregnant with me. Um, so my birthday is September 5th. And the expected due date. And I I can say that because it it's very heavily calculated. All of these things with IVF are so heavily calculated. Um, they could tell me September 2nd, without a doubt, that would be her due date. <laughs> and, wait, wait, say um, that again. It just blanked out. What was her due date? Oh, September 2nd okay. was her due date. Um, which then another synchronicity is that's my mother-in-law's birthday. So it just sort of felt like kind of the merging of worlds. Um, and so whenever she was born, I also knew enough at that time too to not hold her to a specific date, but it just sort of felt like like one of those things that could make, you know, appease my mother-in-law, make her happy. And also finding out that she, that she and I could be birthday buddies or, you know, that my mom found out when I found out kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, just felt like that confirmation of like, this is however this ends up whatever the outcome of this these synchronicities continue to affirm that this is the path and in the pregnancy so fertility the trauma of fertility impacts pregnancy and it impacted mine I remember feeling like it was challenging to really put my arms around this pregnancy to feel like it wasn't just going to be here and then go like the ones before had. And it felt like if I needed all of these drugs to get her to this point, then it at what point is my body going to just rely on these drugs and stop doing intuitively what it knows to do? Um, so there was some, and right now that's, I am, I'm still in the rebuilding trust phase with my body, or at least I feel like I am. Um, with losses, we often, I mean, I haven't been through a loss, but I know many people that have, you don't want to emotionally connect. And I recently said this on a podcast with my friend because I had this light bulb moment of you don't want to emotionally connect with the pregnancy to protect yourself, to protect the pain of loss. And it's a friend of mine that had a loss and now is pregnant again. And I and I told her that I was showering one day and I got this like spirit basically said, and I cry every time I say it. <laughs> mm. I, 
every baby is worthy of celebration and love, whether they're there for six weeks or 20. And we don't want to connect with them for our own selfish hurt. But if they're there, they have to be celebrated. Mm. It just hits so deep. Like, I haven't even been through a loss, but I just feel like a lot of women need to hear that. That It's beautiful. Yeah, we want to selfishly protect our own heart. But if you are pregnant, that baby is there and they are worthy of love and attention and celebration. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, we don't have control as to whether their life will be 10 weeks or 40 weeks or... 80 years. We have no control. It's all a mystery and it will always be a mystery. And the the fertility journey really teaches that. And I think it is a divine journey because it shows you the lack of control that you feel when you're a parent. It's like preparing you <laughs> for parenthood. You yeah. don't have control. You can control in your own house like what your child what foods in the cupboards and how you speak to your child and what school you send them to. But you can't control how they act in a situation. You don't control how they grow up and what they value in life. If they're going to have the same spiritual beliefs as you, they might be atheist. I think the fertility journey really truly is trying to teach us these lessons on surrendering control before a child and a lot of I think a lot of people get pregnant really fast really easy and have kids because having a child I think is God's way of curing control issues in the easiest way fastest way like you want to cure control issues get pregnant have a kid but for some of us like me and you our lessons on control are different and a lot of the curing of control issues has come before a child yes and that what you beautifully summarized there has feel like brings me to having her which is i repeatedly got the comment from people that i wish that i could have enjoyed my baby as much as you are enjoying Charlotte and it is exactly what you said it because I was given the opportunity whether or not I wanted it here it was to surrender beyond my control far before Charlotte came into the picture then when she got here I was much more equipped to continue surrendering that control and to really relish in who she was without expecting or wanting her to be a certain way or become a certain thing. Like you said, we control a certain subset of things and to really differentiate between that is so important because kids will shine a light on your shadows and that can be 
so uncomfortable if you have not stepped foot in your shadows. Yep. Do you want to face your shadow? Have a kid. (laughs) Yes. You will see how impatient you are, how grouchy you are, how perfectionist you are. Oh, my gosh. A very, very slight example of that, which is it has holds no like negative or positive um, would be I hear Charlotte. We have a dog named Zoe and I hear Charlotte say when she wants Zoe to come to her or get her attention, she'll say, hey, hey. Hey, hey, puppy. Hey, hey. And I would laugh with Greg, like, where is she getting that? Where is she getting that? And here I am getting the towel as Zoe comes in from the rain. And I'm like, hey, hey, Zoe, hey. (laughs) And it just dawned on, it like hit me like a ton of bricks. And here Zoe comes actually with. Oh my gosh. It was like, oh, wow. And my lack of awareness, even for that, to something that's so innocuous. So really calling to mind, wow, what else is she picking up on and emulating that I can't even recognize as being something that I do? Oh, yeah. you. I hang out with my friend with a two-year-old all the time, and he was just over for a pool date, and the mom put water on the pool deck because the pool deck is black at my house and it gets really hot. So she just swoosh water on the pool deck. And then 30 seconds later, he goes and does that. It's immediate. (laughs) He knew, yeah. It's immediate. He, it's, yeah, it's, you really, absolutely. you really get an insight look on to, how you speak and how you act and in the smallest ways, in the smallest ways. Yes. Yeah, so I want you to talk about um, like, what does it feel like to be a mom after longing for it for so long and for so much heartbreak? How, mm-hmm. like if you're having a tough moment as a mom, I want to know how that is because mm-hmm. in parenthood, you can become a victim to your child. But with your history, are, are you hard on yourself if you become a victim to Charlotte in a moment? Hmm. No, I would say I, I have so much more awareness of what is happening. I can feel things bubbling up and I'm able to say, even this morning, I was able to say, Greg, I'm feeling really overstimulated right she's nursing she'll be two next month so she's not like just snuggled up here at my breast like nursing like she was a year ago or more than that two years ago she is full-on touching pulling pinching wriggling moving and so my body is getting stimulated in many different ways and to try and hold a conversation with another adult during that is enough to make my mind just like explode and so I'm able to really call to mind awareness of what's going on that this is not anything that I I'm not 
angry at anybody. This is not something that anybody's at fault for. What's happening is that my body's becoming overstimulated. I need to tend to that. I need to tend to her. And I need to have a conversation with you in just a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas I think things like that, when you don't know that you're overstimulated as a parent, that can very easily turn into rage or a victim mode or deflection um, about other people's needs coming before your own. And I find, I said this to my friend yesterday, actually, that I'm finding the best quote unquote mom friends I have are the, the mom friends that were my friends before they were moms or I was a mom because I don't necessarily need somebody in my life who we're just connecting over complaining about our children. I have no space in my life for that. And that is something I heard you talk about before on a podcast. And I was just like giving it a standing ovation. Yes, yes. People need to talk more about this because as I waited to be a mother, I felt like that's all I heard was people complaining about being a parent and how hard it is and all of these things. And I just remember then being, I don't want to say surprised, but I remember getting there being like, oh, it's because you haven't dealt with other things so this feels really hard but it's really not about what you think it's about it's not it's never about the child no it's never about the child and we know that because i recently had an awareness of if you can become a victim to not being pregnant woe is me i am not pregnant and then get pregnant, whether naturally or IVF, it doesn't matter, and then become a parent, and then become a victim to that baby, that child, that toddler, your external circumstances changed. You couldn't get pregnant, you were not a parent, and then you became a parent, yet you're still a victim. So what's the common denominator? Your mind. Right. Your ego. Absolutely. It's not yeah. about not getting pregnant, it's not about your child. It's about your mind. Yes. Yes, it's that John Kabat-Zinn, wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. And yeah, you, yeah, you said it. If if you haven't dealt what for, with what fertility allows is that space to deal uninhibited with the things that will come up when you have a child. And so what I've found truly that I've gotten to experience with Charlotte is delight. I've been able and continue to be able to be present to her. I'm still working on my own internal overwhelm with mess and what that says about me as a person. And she is just joy. She is. <laughs> She is. I met Charlotte a few weeks ago. I took pictures of Andrea and Charlotte and Greg and Charlotte made ugh, an impact on me. <laughs> pure joy. Pure joy. 
just pure radiance. Like, she looks like an elf. She looks like a fairy. <laughs> and we said this the other day, like, she's not from this world. Like, she's just not made of this world because of her joy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That girl. She, it is, it's, it's, it's defiant joy. And not in, I don't use the word defiant in a negative way. It is like stubborn joy. I am here. I am joyful. I am radiant. And let's all get on board. <laughs> let's all live a little bit more like Charlotte. I love it. And so for me, like in my fertility journey, you know, finding that, that stubborn joy in the waiting. I do want to know where you and Greg are right now in your journey. So Charlotte's going to be two next month on August 22nd. And it's an interesting time in my life because the people who were pregnant with me at the same time that I was pregnant with Charlotte, um, many of them are expecting their second child or um, have already had their second child, whatever that path for them may be. I feel like that those timelines don't stop once you have a child it's kind of like oh well and now we think about the proper spacing between children as though that can be controlled or should be or whatever um and charlotte was our you know four out of four embryo and so um we don't have anything in the reserves um where that's concerned and we also are at a place where we're not looking to enter back into a fertility clinic for this journey. Um, we're open to having more children. And where I'm at with it is a very liberated place of recognizing that for all of the things that we tried to plan, the ways that she came to us that were unplanned, were so incredibly beautiful that we couldn't have done that if we had tried. For instance, she was born on the blue moon, which I have like, such an affinity for the full moon and for it to be on like, the second full moon of August. So special, not to mention it was National Rainbow Baby Awareness Day, which that's what she is. She's our rainbow baby. <clears throat> I even had like a crocheted um, or handmade crocheted rainbow um, little romper that she wore in her newborn photos that I had gotten long before we even knew that she was going to be a, a she. Um, but so those kinds of things show me that there's a God working for our highest good beyond what we could plan or hope. In fact, it goes in line with a prayer that I always used to pray, which is glory be to God who through his almighty hand at work within us is able to do far more beyond what we could ever hope for, imagine, or dream of. Yeah. And that leaning into that feels more available to me in this stage of my life in this level of consciousness and it's not to say that it's without 
those same circumstances that entered before where other people are popping up pregnant and and I am conscious of how I'm interacting with that and how I am entering embracing my path of motherhood where I'm lifting other women up and seeing this possibility for them as an encouragement for me as opposed to living in maiden which is looking at other women as competition or their success as somehow a hindrance to mine and it continues to be a call to growth and one that may not always feel comfortable and certainly doesn't feel comfortable. And I have my moments, certainly. Um, And to really shed that dogma of diagnosis, um, dependence on anyone else, any, anyone with an MD after their name to know my body better, better than I know my body. Um, I am embracing this season of trust and surrender and believe that Charlotte is going to also be a part of calling the spirit baby in to our family if, when, it's time and there's mystery there's wonder in the waiting that's actually next to my bed i have that in a frame there's wonder in the waiting there's a lot of things in the waiting but there is wonder yeah the waiting is in my experience how we're carved into who god really wants us to be and it can pertain to people not with fertility issues because it's parents that are going through a hard season with you know a baby that won't sleep you're in a waiting game of waiting for that season to be over and the next season to start and and in parenthood you know a lot of moms get caught up in that waiting game where it's you know once they're done breastfeeding once they start sleeping once they can go to school and it's this waiting for this next phase and next phase and then you're never really present with life as it is and then 30 years go by you look back and you're like i kept waiting for the next thing the next phase for life to get easier on me <laughs> for little you know like it, we're just always wanting for life to feel a little more peaceful or easier or and it's and it's up to us to craft it. Yes. Oh my gosh, you just touched on so many areas that are invitations for surrender of control in parenthood. Sleep. <laughs> holy moly. Eating. Yeah. Toilet toileting. All <laughs> of these things that a parent cannot do for a child. And that invites so much surrender. And waiting and you had so much practice in waiting with four IVF transfers so much you got that you got you got the best practice for parenthood Andrea <laughs> are you Likewise. professional <laughs> I can say the same for you girl <laughs> oh thank you so much thank you